Hello and welcome back to the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series. Um, as always, supported by the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports and sponsored by Vicon. I'm Stuart McCurlane Naylor from the University of Suffolk and today I'm joined by John Drazen, who is a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania. But perhaps kind of more importantly for today's topic, um, John is well really an expert in outreach or using biomechanics for STEM outreach and engaging youth in biomechanics. Um, so yeah, within that, he's published papers on using biomechanics for STEM outreach. And this year, he was actually awarded by the American Association for the Advancement of Science with their Early Career Award for Public Engagement with Science. And yeah, John is also the STEM director for the fourth family incorporated and i think one quote when i was digging through twitter earlier that summed it up quite well there was a quote from the national biomechanics day account that said john is the living definition of combining human biomechanics research with scientific engagement while keeping stem fun for young athletes so i think that was a better quote from national biomechanics day than i could have come up with as an intro myself, so I thought I'd steal that. Um, but yeah, I'll shut up and I'll hand over to John, who can tell us a bit more about his work engaging youth in biomechanics. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's absolutely wonderful to be on with you today. Uh, thank you so much for organizing this awesome speaker series. Um, at, at the end of the presentation, we'll talk about who's coming up next and uh, to be included in a lecture series with uh, Dr. Walter Herzog is absolutely stunning and amazing. And it really speaks to the breadth and impact of this program. So thank you to the sponsors, Vicon, and of course, the International Society for Biomechanics and Sports. Um, so today, I'm going to be talking about this general theme of don't preach to the choir and how you can use um, sports and biomechanics and sports and sports science um, to uh, engage new populations of youth in STEM. So uh, briefly, uh, what am I going to be talking about today? Uh, I'm going to first talk about how I got into STEM through sports science, um, then why STEM outreach through sports is important. Um, the development of uh, over the past eight years of the fourth family STEM program, which is why um, I am where I am today. And then um, merging community engagement and academic research. And then we're going to end with a call to action for sports biomechanists to get involved in their communities through youth sports programs. So um, the thing that's really exciting about talking to this group um, is that usually when I say this at an engineering conference um, that I hated science when I was growing up, there's almost gasps. Um, but it's true. In high school, I didn't really find science or math very interesting because the perception that I had was that there were these really brilliant guys from like 60 to 250 years ago who were absolutely brilliant. And they got these wonderful facts and understandings um, from on high. And they were so smart that I could never reach their level. Um, and then someone else came along and invented the most scientific thing in the world which were textbooks. And they took all this knowledge, they put them into textbooks. And then my job as a science student was to sit back and just be in awe of how smart these people were. And I was very frustrated because there was like this single direction of knowledge where I felt like science was a body of facts. And the way that we interact with science until we get to different until we get to a high enough level is that science uh, instruction focuses on studying the results of other people's research. And I'm a big Carl Sagan fan. And one of the big things that he talks about is that communicating the act of science and the way that we find these answers is more important than the facts that they produce. Um, and even understanding what a scientific fact is um, and what it took to get there is very important. So as someone with their doctorate at this point, I always joke with my students, I can tell them what science is because I have a voice and they have a voice. Um, but in my, in my view, and I've, I haven't really found this to be wrong, scientists ask and answer questions about the world that they personally find interesting. 
And the big thing is that when the public engages with science, they sit there and they look at, they, they see some cells, right? And they're looking at different cells and the public's like, I don't understand this. And the scientists have the prerequisite knowledge to sit there and think like, understanding the way that these cells are interacting with each other will help us cure cancer or all of these other conditions. So they have all of this background on why this is interesting, but the public doesn't necessarily. At the same time, you have engineers who are building things like this terrifying raptor robot. Um, and the public says, okay, this is science, this is engineering, but like, holy Henry, I'm never ever gonna be able to make something like this, so why even try? But the thing is that if scientists ask and answer questions about what they find interesting, I'm a huge basketball fan. I've been loving the NBA bubble. And I'm really curious what happened on this play. This is the play from the NBA Finals last year that literally ended a dynasty, okay, where Kevin Durant ruptured his Achilles, all right? And the thing is that the beauty of sports biomechanics is that we are one of the only fields that directly can answer this question that millions of sports fans care about and millions of kids wonder about. So we are very uniquely positioned. Um, so the thing that's really funny is that I was at my parents' house a few months ago and my mom found something. Um, this is uh, my certificates uh, from when I, I think I was nine as a football player. And this brought back a rush of memories because when I give all these talks, I always lead off by saying I hated science. And then when I was looking at this, I remembered the fact that when I was a nine-year-old, they had a John rule, which is where I asked so many questions. I, I was constantly asking like, why do we do this? Why do we do that? Um, and it got to the point where I had to run a lap every time I asked a question. And the thing is that I ended up learning a lot about football and getting in really good shape. Okay. But the thing is that I was curious about what made someone good at football and I wasn't finding those answers unless I talked to my coaches and that is being a scientist. And unfortunately, by the time I got to high school, I kind of lost that a little bit where I had all these questions, but your coaches would sit there and be, you'd be like, what, why are you telling me to get to the backside for a rebound? And the coaches would be like, because you have to. And you're like, why? And they say, go run the lap. All right. And the beauty of science and the beauty of sports science is that it can give you answers to those things. And the thing is that I, um, as a high schooler, I was very fortunate in the fact that I had a uh, former college athlete as my physics teacher. And he was able to authentically engage with me on the science of sports. Um, and in contrast to a teacher who looks at me, um, I'm six, eight, you can't see it. We're sitting down or virtual. Um, but the thing is that I used to have teachers all the time sit there and I would get like an 85 on a test in like calculus or something like that. And I'd have a question about it. And my teacher would sit there and say, well, like calculus is a lot like free throws. You got to practice if you want to be good at it. And I sit there and I'm like, you don't have to make a basketball analogy to me. Like I, I have an A in your class, just answer my question. Um, and I found that phenomenally frustrating. And it wasn't until I met this physics teacher who was able to sit there and authentically engage me in sports by introducing me to this thing called biomechanics, where I sat there and I realized that I have a bunch of questions about basketball and science is, a, is simply a way to rigorously approach the question and then find an answer, and then also tell me how much I can trust that answer. So one of the things that I've realized is that that is not present in a lot of the ways that we teach science, and it's really important because diversity in the STEM career fields is really, really important, okay? Um, because there is severe, and by the way, I know this is the International Society for Sports Biomechanics, I'm going to focus mainly on the United States facts because that's what I've really researched, so I apologize. Um, but um, the, the URM population... Um, By 2050, we are going to be a majority-minority country. Um, and yet, um, Black and Hispanic um, individuals only make up 11% um, of the STEM fields. 
And there's people in the old guard who'll sit there and say, well, you need to like science to become a scientist. But the thing is that in order to be successful in our society and in order to make money and support your family and kind of socioeconomic mobility, um, STEM is the way to do it. So excluding these groups and this underrepresentation is a huge, huge, huge issue that we need to address head on as a country because diverse groups um, do more creative science. They have more impactful science. And there's also a huge issue of equity in this. So we need to do whatever we can to make these career fields more accessible. So the question is, how does someone become a scientist or engineer? Um, the thing that predicts success in really any activity is something called individual interest, which is where it's a long-term, intrinsically motivated passion for something. Um, however, um, everybody starts off as situational, where you're, you're a little kid or you're an adult and you sit there and you have a short-term experience with something where if I do this, I, someone, I will get a reward for it. So it's extrinsically motivated. And what we want to be able to do is we want to figure out how to transition um, people from having a situational interest in STEM because they have to get good grades for their homework or something like that, all the way to individual interests, which predicts long-term STEM activities. So there's an entire transition where you go from situational interest to maintaining situational, where you have these repeated exposures, to emerging interest, where the perception of the person changes towards these activities. And then that morphs into uh, individual interests. And the thing that's very interesting is that the situational and maintained situational, that takes place inside the classroom, also known as the formal STEM education environment. Um, but the thing that actually makes someone into a scientist is the informal STEM educational experiences, which is where they're actively seeking out opportunities to engage with these materials. Um, and one of the really beautiful things that I hope everyone takes away from my talk is that there, are, there is a huge body of STEM education literature that can help you formalize your thoughts and understand these relationships. So this is a really great paper by Maltese. Um, if you, I'll put, I have the bibliography um, later. Um, so future STEM workers are recruited through um, participation in the STEM pipeline. And as I just said, informal STEM experiences are associated with majoring in college. So traditional formal STEM activities include being in science fairs, building robots and having them fight, uh, being in a science Olympiad, or doing um, or voluntarily seeking out opportunities to do research on a college campus, um, among many others. Um, but the way that this is framed a lot of times is that informal STEM participation as a high school student lead to students having a STEM major. However, the thing is that this is just the tip of the iceberg because you're not going to sign up for these programs if you aren't interested in STEM. And you're not going to be interested in STEM if you're not aware of how great it is. Um, so um, this this kills when I talk to uh, chemical engineers. But we can uh, we can look at this as almost a activation energy, like a, a an energy threshold that needs to be met to be engaged. And this STEM intensive outreach can't engage these students who don't have a pre existing interest. So what act? What out-of-school activities do youth voluntarily participate in? There's a really nice study by Larson in 2016 um, where they talked about or where they did a survey of um, over 2,000 students and 9% of these students participated in STEM-related clubs. And what drives this participation? There's another nice study um, where what they did is they did a survey of both boys and girls um, with over 1,000 students and they looked at what the odds were of them participating in a voluntary STEM activity. And for males, um, you can see that if they don't have a science identity, um, they do not engage in these materials or these opportunities. Um, but there isn't really that much of a difference between middle and high level interest. And um, however, among females, in order for them to participate in these STEM activities, they have to really embrace their science identity, which is very difficult for certain groups. And I'm going to get into that in a second. So what does popular culture tell us about STEM identity? Uh, first off, that it's nerdy. Second off, that it's done by geniuses. 
And third, that like I absolutely love hidden figures. Um, but hidden figures spends a lot of time talking about the protagonist being this absolutely brilliant person from the cradle. Um, and I didn't think I was brilliant when I was growing up. Maybe some people do, but I would argue that I'm an effective scientist without sitting there and um, taking high school classes as a fifth grader or however old she is in the movie. Um, and these um, types of um, these types of representations are very damaging. So how do these stereotypes impact student beliefs about science? So there's another nice study uh, by Star and Leaper, um, and they had a questionnaire where they assessed, um, they evaluated like how much they've, how much these students valued STEM and how competent they felt that they were at STEM. And then they saw how much these students bought into genius stereotypes and then nerd stereotypes about science. And then the nifty thing about this is then the students reported their own beliefs about their own identities within these two stereotypes. And now, so for the genius stereotype, what they found was that students who thought that they were geniuses and thought that they were, that scientists should be geniuses, the more they thought they were a genius, the more likely they were to um, think that they were good at STEM. And on the other hand, for the medium students, there wasn't much of a relationship. But for the students who don't think that they're a genius, the um, they thought that there was a very negative co uh, correlation between STEM, the, their belief that they could do STEM, and um, how uh, and how important being a genius was for being in STEM. So these stereotypes matter. On the other hand, for nerdy, okay. Um, the students who thought that they were nerds and scientists were nerds, there was a positive correlation. But once again, if you don't buy into the nerd stereotype, um, you don't value STEM. So these representations are very important and they are very impactful. And so sport, the reason I'm talking about this is that sports science and sports biomechanics provides an alternative stereotype for what science is. Uh, when we were promoting this talk, uh, a bunch of people were retweeting and then um, responding to my pinned tweet that was talking about how athletes need to talk about um, their identity as athlete, as both scientists and athletes. And I had like three or four people sit there and respond like, oh, like I have my PhD in biomechanics and I was on the Canadian Olympic team for running. And I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. We need to highlight this. And then like, I'm a division one basketball player studying physics. Like, it's absolutely amazing. Like the, the, these representations are important. All right. And fighting against the big bang stereotype is something that we are uniquely positioned to fight. And the thing is that because like when I was, a, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, like I really enjoyed basketball and by being introduced to sports science, it provided me this really interesting an amazing career where I asked and answer questions about human movement. Um, so after uh, so after I became interested in biomechanics and sports science, I was a four-year college athlete at SUNY Geneseo, and I studied physics. So I was a physics major playing basketball center. Okay, um, and uh, for my senior capstone, I had the opportunity to build my own biomechanics lab where um, I used uh, like low cost force plates and like a video camera to sit there and track the rehabilitation of uh, one of my injured athlete, uh, one of my injured um, teammates. And it was really cool. And the funny thing about this is that like, I was advised by a nuclear physicist and we had no idea what we were doing. Um, and what was really cool is that like, since we didn't know what we were doing, we like reinvented the wheel over the course of like a year. And I learned so much about biomechanics and it was absolutely amazing. And it was just asking and answering questions that we found interesting. And these experiences um, allowed me to go pursue a PhD in biomedical engineering and RPI. And now I'm a postdoc in the human motion lab at Penn. And without sports, I would not have been able to make it through this entire pathway. 
So with all that in mind, um, one of my college basketball teammates, uh, John Scott, reached out to me uh, in 2012 when I started my doctorate. And he approached me and he told me, hey, John, um, my, my basketball players suck at math and rebounding. And I thought of you. So <laughs> I started coaching and I started tutoring. And um, I realized that the best way to coach my athletes was when they said why, I'd sit there and say, let's collect some data. And then they'd be able to collect the data and then say, hmm, well, when Jamal shoots from the left side, there is a 70% chance it goes to the backside. So I should probably get there. Or I need to box out because... Dr. Drazen, or I wasn't a doctor at that point, but John's coach Drazen sat there and he showed me like about mechanical advantage on the court and then on a whiteboard. So like I will get low to box outs. Um, and so I realized, and I already knew this, but I realized that using uh, science within sports was a really great advantage for what we were doing. Um, for the actual coaching and it can provide answers and rationale for why you're providing this guidance. And on the court or in the classroom, I also realized that bringing in and capitalizing on our shared experience and, and passion for sports was an excellent way to teach kids about science. Um, so I still remember this play um, pretty much uh, LeBron is ending uh, Jason Terry's life. Um, so we came into the classroom and, uh, for the after school tutoring program. And one of the kids was just like, yo, like, why, like, how, how is LeBron able to dunk like that? And you can't because we're both the same height. <laughs> and I'm like, well, like it could be differences in muscle. And then we ended up having a really, really detailed conversation about muscle mechanics, which was absolutely amazing. And I actually got to the point where I was sitting there on the whiteboard, drawing out actin and myosin and talking about the cross bridge cycle. And these kids definitively were failing high school biology. And I didn't even know how impactful that was until I came in for the next tutoring program. And there were these two kids like talking to each other in the back. And like, they were like doing this thing with their hands. And I go into the back and I'm going to yell at them about paying attention. And then I realized that the kids were sitting there and they were, they were explaining to the student who missed the class how myosin climbs over actin. And then at the end, he goes like, yeah, and that's why LeBron can dunk like he does and Dr. Drazen can't. And um, these students like were covering the biology of life. And yet they're sitting there and they're talking about almost graduate level muscle mechanics topics because they're interested. So there's a huge opportunity to use movement science, especially within sports, to engage these kids. So with all of this in mind, um, how can we use this on a wide scale and why is this important? So from that same study with Larson, 15% of the kids participated in basketball. Another 47% of the kids participated in another sport. Okay. So the thing is that sports has so much of a larger reach than these traditional programs. So why do we want to use youth sports? It has a huge reach into diverse populations and pre-existing networks. I've had a lot of conversations with high school administrators and high school teachers, and they sit there and say, our kids can't learn science because we don't have enough money to pay for robotics kits. And I totally get that and I totally feel that. But the thing is that we can use sports as an excellent venue to teach science. And there's a huge population that is rabid fans of it and want to get better. Um, and then also almost every place has a youth sports league. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. You can approach a local youth basketball program and say, hey, like I'm a sports scientist. I would love to sit there and help out with coaching and run a sports science, uh, run a sports science clinic for all of your teams. And then boom, that's 150 kids self-selected on an interest in sports rather than an interest in science. So you're really broadening the, the pipeline. Also, one of the big things is that youth enjoy sports and expect to work hard to improve. 
All right. So the thing is that like you sit there and say, like you, you look online and it's like hashtag grinding, you know, and it's like somebody sitting there and saying, I put up 10,000 shots this, this summer because I want to get a D1 scholarship. Um, one of the big things is that these students are intrinsically motivated to get better at sports. So if you can show them and authentically prove to them that sitting there and um, understanding biomechanics can improve their performance, that can be folded into that huge work ethic that they have. And everyone who's watching this probably understands that um, the NBA and all these other professional sports leagues, they pay top dollar for sports scientists. Um, and the thing is that the reason why they do is because it's a competitive advantage. And we can teach these kids how to do it themselves. So they're not just great basketball players, but they can also go into these career fields if they don't make it to the NBA. And then finally, participation should be predicated on a pre-existing interest in sports rather than STEM. All right. So the thing is, if I sat there and if I, if I said, I'm going to have a robotics club, everyone can come. I'm going to get 10 kids. If I sit there and say, I have a free basketball program, who wants to do it? I'll get a hundred. All right. And those hundred kids aren't self-selected. I'm like, hey, I want to learn about science. So in summary, sports science is an authentic, relevant introduction to STEM for potentially millions of people. All right. And I just touched on this, but STEM has become an integral part of pro sports. So we have somebody like Zach Levine. By the way, I'm a huge like basketball fan, so all my examples are going to be basketball. I apologize for any of the uh, both American and real football fans but this is gonna be all basketball but one of the big things i'll talk to the students about is that like this is zach levine one of the best dunkers at the nba he tore his acl and he's literally on instagram um uh highlighting and documenting his recovery an engineer built this machine a biomechanist analyzed it to show that it was efficacious all right and then when he's recovering he's going into a sports science lab to see how he's doing. All of these things demonstrate the importance of sports science within sports. And then there's also a huge entrepreneurial movement. Like there's this really cool um, company called um, Home Court where you can do like automated training. So they're really, it's really permeating throughout this entire thing. So how can we authentically incorporate sports into STEM education? So the thing that used to upset me when I was a kid um, was that they give me a, ba a basketball kinematic problem, all right, and they said that they calculate the initial starting velocity to make it so they make it in the hoop. But the thing is that that is the exact same question as this cannonball, only with like a sugar coating of um, it's a sugar coating of sports, all right. So this doesn't help a basketball player, but on the other hand. Um, we can use examples from professional sports science and analytics, whether it's sitting there and talking about like using heat maps or talking about biomechanical training techniques or explaining the technology that allows these uh, professional sports to collect these data. So we need to make it authentic. So I'd say use science as it's meant to be used to ask and answer interesting questions. Some questions that you can ask that I've literally run month-long programs on is what makes somebody good at basketball? How do we measure this? How do we understand our findings? So you can sit there and you can use these types of general questions and have it so that youth athletes can tunnel into their specific interests. And people might say, oh, well, like, if you run a robotics club, you know that the kid at least is interested in learning C++. Like, how do we know these basketball players are going to be prepared to do type, this type of stuff? And if anybody is a basketball fan or a 2K fan, they know that scientific data collection and analysis has begun to permeate youth basketball culture. So I know a bunch of Division One players who are fixated on improving their measurables for the NBA draft. There are an NBA 2K, which is like one of the most um, popular sports video games um, in the world and ha actually has its own popular professional league. They represent 
player stats using things like radar graphs and then also using things like heat maps. So what we can do is we can create low-cost alternatives to engage and empower these students with these tools pertaining to their own play. So we can build things like low-cost sports science equipment. This is one of the big things that I do. We can take those data that we collect and then put it into forms that they find engaging. This is another thing that we do um, that I'll talk about in a little bit. And then we can sit there and develop tools to be able to measure and visualize things like shooting performance. So this is a um, heat map that um, I actually used for our 2017 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics paper that actually won best research paper, which was absolutely amazing. Um, and so here's a very quick example of how you can use this type of stuff. So kids are fascinated with like, who's got hops? How high can they jump? And the thing is that if you look at this from a physics perspective, it's actually very straightforward. If you design a device that can detect when someone's standing on the ground, you can measure hang time. So pretty much when they're on the plate, the signal is high. And then when they leave the plate, the signal is low. And this is the technology that's behind all these jump pads that a lot of athletic departments can like get charged like $700 for. So you can use, you can build your own device and then actually have it so that the students understand how to calculate this type of information. So you can use this, you can use this to teach or make relevant the conservation of energy where you can actually walk through how to use algebra to build a device that measures something that you care about. And then you can solve the conservation of energy to solve for the final height. And then you can use a 1D kinematic equation and then solve for takeoff velocity. And then you can combine the equations to get the thing that relates hang time to vertical jump. And one of my favorite things about this is that the kids realize that they can cheat by increasing their hang time artificially by holding their knees up. And then the kids start literally screaming at each other about science. I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, they, they literally start sitting there and saying, you're cheating. You're lifting your knees up. That's artificially increasing your hang time and you're cheating. And the kids are like, why would that cheat? And they're like, it's a bunch of math. Do you want to learn about it? <laughs> like, it's hilarious. Um, and the thing is that they get invested and it's a way to make these things relevant. Um, so I have a big, so actually there, I actually have a paper that you can find in my Google scholar describing how to build this. Um, but I actually, I've built probably 50 of these across the United States at this point. Um, and pretty much it's made out of wood. It has an Arduino in it. Um, you use a voltage divider and a, uh, force sensitive resistor. You put it inside the plate and, um, it costs about $50. And making actually making the device is part of the activity um and teachers also actually really love it because they sit there and they they feel like they're doing science um and the thing that's really cool about this is that you just need to go to home depot and buy the stuff and then you can build it very easily um and the the next thing is that like so for example i've used that plate um, at NBA Summer League uh, with the Tomorrow Stars Foundation. Um, so for the past three years, I've gone out to Las Vegas where I helped develop the court science uh, classroom program. And the kids really love making the equipment and then demoing it for people. So, and the cool thing about this is that all of these students that you're seeing in this photo are recruited through the junior MBA program um, in Las Vegas. So these kids are basketball players first who are now learning about STEM. And the students actually get to go onto the concourse uh, during the NBA or uh, during the summer uh, during the summer league games. And we actually have a booth where they measure the vertical jump of the people on the concourse of the sports fans, and they're explaining how the equipment works. And they also get to decorate it. You can see all these different things. And you can see that you can actually get into engineering design and consumer um, engineering design, like consumer facing, consumer centered engineering design. Because as you can see here, the students sat there and they realized that they should put feet on the plate. 
so that people knew how to use it and where to stand. Um, and this is just one example of the way that we've used this type of stuff. So over the past four or over the past eight years, we've engaged over 10,000 students in STEM. So one of our first programs, or one of our first years of programs is that up until this summer due to coronavirus, we've actually run um, basketball uh, camps with NBA players uh, in Albany, New York. So um, we had Marcus Aldridge, Quinn Cook, Emmanuel Moutier, and last year we had Rodney, Rodney Magruder. And the big thing that we did with that camp is that we had a sports science station where each camper would get their own customized sports science report. Um, we also have run summer programs where we sit there and do like engineering design um, within the context of sports for college and older high school students. Um, I previously mentioned the court science classroom at NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. And then also we have a really great STEM plus M program with the Columbia Biomedical Engineering Department. Um, and they've done an absolutely wonderful job implementing our approach. And we have a bunch of our student volunteers working there as well. So I just want to get into a very quick case study um, on the development, deployment, and evaluation of a campus-based sports biomechanics program. And I did this with a great team at RPI of uh, David Core, Diva Chan, and Amy Loya. So the question that we wanted to ask is that um, can sport programs broaden access to the STEM pipeline by engaging youth without a pre-existing interest uh, in STEM? And so we developed a sports science clinic um, that was hosted as part of National Biomechanics Day. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to replicate the feel of the NBA rookie combine um, and have it so that they got actionable feedback. Um, these athletes got actionable feedback. So what we did to make sure that it was as authentic as possible is we actually recruited student athletes from the men's and women's soccer and basketball teams to help develop the program. Um, and they helped design the tests, the equipment, and actually ran the clinic, which was amazing. Um, so in order to test, uh, actually to actually do our experiment, we recruited both STEM-interested youth and sport-interested youth to participate in the clinic. So our sports cohort, um, we contacted athletic departments and we recruited the men's and women's soccer and basketball teams for two local urban high schools. Um, and then for our control, which were the STEM interested kids, um, we accident, like we had a group of, um, we had a consortium of STEM outreach programs hear about the event and request to join the program and participate. So it's a really nice control to sit there and say, these are the people who would be on campus anyway. Um, the way that we assess the program is that we collected demographic info, pre-post surveys, and we had a 15-question Likert-type survey where we characterized interest in sports, sports science, and STEM. And then we calculated domain averages to form true Likert um, items. So before the actual program, we had the college athletes spend eight weeks learning the engineering design process, um, and they designed, built, and tested their own sports science equipment. So as I said earlier, I'm not a soccer aficionado, um, so I really actually needed this um, content area expertise to help us with this. So I asked them a question. I asked them, what makes a soccer player elite? Because I honestly don't know. And these soccer players, they actually spent a bunch of time thinking about it, and they identified foot speed. And then as an engineer, I said, how can we build a device to actually measure this? And they came up with this idea called the toe tapper. So the, the, athlete, the student athletes went in, and they um, designed the device, which ended up being a wooden box. We had other athletes help build these, uh, the actual electronics behind it, and they got to actually test it. So um, if you can tell me um, when it breaks, so right there. So they're doing, they're actually doing uh, fail early, fail often. And they actually had to go back to the drawing board a few times. But by the end of it, they actually developed a device that they used in their practice. So, and you can see they're actually testing. They, they built this off of the drill that I guess soccer players do where you practice your foot speed by touching the top of a soccer ball. Um, but they ended up building five or six of these. Um, so all of the youth participants ended up participating in the sports science clinic during um, National Biomechanics Day. 
and all of the programs and all the entire clinic was actually run by the college student athletes. And all of the um, visiting high school athletes um, filled in their own sports science report where they entered in their information and then they actually directly compared it to the averages of the college athletes. So the athletes, so the information that they were getting is actually actionable because these students want to play in college. A lot of these students think they're going division one. And if they're not outperforming a division three player, they, they, they need to think about what they can do to get better. And these reports came along with suggested training approaches. And also we always invite these students back year after year after year so they can actually see how they get better throughout the, throughout the participation in the program. Um, so now on the results. So uh, the breakdown of the participants was that the STEM cohort was very female, which is great, um, but it was predominantly white, um, whereas the sport cohort was significantly more diverse. Um, so uh, there were the same numbers of African-American as white students, which is like a really big achievement um, in terms of making these programs more accessible. So the first hypothesis for the study was that the STEM cohort would have a higher starting STEM interest relative to the sport cohort. And what we found was that um, the STEM cohort, uh, like 96% of them agreed that they wanted to study STEM in college. Whereas you can see that the mode response for the sports cohort was no. When we asked um, all the students, how interested are you in playing a varsity sport in college? Um, 70% of the sports cohort agreed. Actually, I think it was 80% of the sports cohort agreed. Um, whereas all of the STEM students were like, no. The majority of the STEM students said no. So we can see that these two groups of students have very different starting interests. So our second hypothesis was that the sport cohort would exhibit a larger increase in STEM relative to the STEM cohort. And as you can see here, the STEM cohort did not have a change in interest. They were already excited about it. Now they are more excited about it. Um, and this is a very good finding because what it's saying is that when you have these programs come in, what you're doing is you're not expanding access, you're retaining interest. So a lot of these programs, they're accelerating students towards careers in STEM, which is phenomenally important, but we also need to have the chance to engage new populations. And on the other hand, the sport cohort, we had a statistically significant increase in interest in pursuing a career in STEM where the mode response shifted from disagree to agree, which is a non-trivial finding. And then finally, um, I mentioned the domain um, interest uh, parameters. And we found that an interest that the interest in science or the interest in STEM was moderately and statistically significantly correlated with an increased interest in um, sports science, which so the, in, the, the appreciation for sports science is driving or is partially correlated with the um, with a change in interest in STEM, which highlights the potential of this approach. And on the other hand, um, we had a non-statistically significant drop in um, the STEM cohort, which I jokingly say the, the the STEM people found out that you can use sports science for sports and uh, they didn't like it, but it wasn't statistically significant. Um, so in, in summary, recruiting youth athletes and teaching STEM through sports broadens access to the STEM pipeline for diverse youth. And so we talked about this before, where there's this required interest in STEM for engagement. And the thing that's really cool is that sports science provides a new way to look at these things and a new way to bring people in. So you don't need to sit there and say, I want to be a robotics engineer when I grow up and then sign up for a robotics club. You can sit there and say, I want to go to the NBA or I want to go to the WNBA. I want to go to the Premier League. And then we just need to sit there and provide them with a pathway to show how a STEM can help them with that. So the key takeaways from um, the talk are uh, that asking and answering student-generated questions is really, really important. 
And that that can work both in a virtual space or in the real world space and also in the virtual space that we find ourselves in right now. So um, this is a photo from the Lamarcus Aldridge camp. Um, and one of the things that one of the biggest things that we did there was that, um, as I said, we provided these radar charts to the students. So they'd sit there or the athletes, they'd sit there and they would go through the entire sports science section of the clinic. And at the end, they got this report that we generated that sat there and compared them to their peers. Um, and so they would know, like, I'm one of the best 17 year olds at sprinting, but I need to get better with my upper body strength. And all of this stuff was actually using DIY sports um, science equipment that was actually built by these two students. And the thing that's really exciting is that this guy is now studying PT and this guy is now studying mechanical engineering. Um, and he's the, he was the high school captain of the, of the basketball team and he was the high school captain of the soccer team. So the thing is that these are like these student mentors that we're working with are the people that these kids look up to. And what we, what we did is we also provided them with like references for like, how does this look like in the NBA? And so, as I said, we, we had our camp canceled this year due to coronavirus. Um, and very fortunately, uh, we, we have a, absolutely one of my wonderful friends um, who I've met through sports science and my STEM outreach work is a guy by the name of Dan Briskin, who uh, works for the Toronto Raptors um, in their business analytics department. And Dan has been a volunteer at a bunch of my programs where he's come out to Vegas with us. He's come to Albany to help run the camp. And when he got locked in for coronavirus, um, he actually built a absolutely wonderful website um, with this student um, by the name of Aditya Ori, who's a, the most precocious 16 year old you're ever gonna meet. So pretty much together, they sat there, they created this organization called Court Science, and um, they built this absolutely phenomenal website that allows us to do virtual outreach with kids where we use NBA data to explore and answer, ask and answer questions in basketball. So for example, if you want to go purely biomechanics, um, you can look at NBA combine data and then look at, look for correlations between NBA combine results. So you can sit there and you can look and see, okay, so people who sprint faster, jump higher. So maybe I should train at both of these things. Okay, that's very superficial, but um, we can get more into that later. And then you can also use these radar plots where you can compare stats among NBA players. And it's all just centered on asking and answering questions. And the really beautiful thing is that there are all of these people in the sports world and in the academic world who have these wonderful expertises and you can find and make these collaborations. It just has to be centered on asking and answering questions. Um, another thing is that to do this type of programming, you need close community partners. You can't sit there and you can't just parachute in and say, I know what's best. So um, all of my programming is done in very close partnership with Fourth Family and um, uh, one of the co-founders, John Scott. So I'm, I might regret putting this photo in a YouTube, but this is a video or this is a picture from us. Uh, as college basketball teammates. Uh, our bus broke down, so they brought us home in a limo. Um, and when I moved back into the area, I linked up with John Scott in 2012. I started building Fourth Family, the Fourth Family STEM program with him in 2013. I started working with him um, at RPI on academic research in 2014. By 2016, we'd assembled an absolutely phenomenal team of mentors. And now in 2020, we're working together, flying around the country um, to do all of these different programs. Um, so the thing is that I didn't create the STEM program. I, I sat there and I worked with very closely with community members who can speak to the specific issues that are facing in the community, recruit people from the community to help run the program. That is a very, very important part of this. And then um, a big thing is that um, STEM educational outreach can serve as an opportunity for both STEM outreach and academic research. Um, and I just missed the, the order. Um, so biomechanics research um, suffers from some of the same issues as STEM education. So STEM education is very good at reaching the students who want to 
um, who want to get engaged in STEM. And at the same time, biomechanics has some of the same problems. Um, they have small sample sizes, uh, how to use some convenient sampling. It's very difficult to do prospective studies on the development of, um, like on human development and chronic injuries. So the thing is that we can sit there and at Fourth Family, we've reached, like we, I have been in the room with five to 10,000 kids. And this is just pictures of things that we did the year before the, the country shut down. And you can see we have this massive reach into um, these communities um, and active communities. And the thing is, if we can develop low cost tools to sit there and collect data at these types of events, we have the potential to do large scale representative prospective studies. And finally, uh, you really want to empower athletes to serve as STEM mentors, um, not because it not only makes for better programs, but it makes it so that athletes can follow our path into STEM through sports. And this is, a, this is an example of a program where the, the student who's explaining the jump plates that I just described to a very large group of kids, he's literally jumping over my head for a slam dunk. I'm 6'8". He's jumping over my head. So when these are the mentors and role models that you're empowering, that makes it so that the message is crystal clear that sports and science help each other. So ways to get involved. Um, I'm running a virtual outreach competition for the American Society of Biomechanics East Regional Meeting. Um, registration is free and there's prizes and potential funding for the best submissions. So I would love to have everybody come to the ASB Regional East Meeting. Um, just Google it and you'll be able to find it. Um, visit fourthfamily.org or email um, John Scott, which is jscott at fourthfamily.org to volunteer with our organization. Get involved with National Biomechanics Day. And then feel free to um, reach out to me via Twitter, uh, at sports to stem And all of my stuff is on Google Scholar. So I'd like to thank my STEM ed collaborators at RPI, uh, Amy Loya, um, David Kaur, and Diva Chan, uh, both John and Joaquin Hoke, who run uh, Fourth Family and co-found the organization. My funding at Penn, which is the Pennport Arachta Fellowship. Um, the Tomorrow Stars Foundation, who's our community partner in Las Vegas, uh, my very patient postdoc mentor, uh, Josh Baxter, um, and Todd Hullfish, um, who's our lab, uh, lab engineer, and then all of the support staff at RPI, as well as all of the students who's, who have worked with me to make this program possible. So um, I'd like to promote the future lectures as well. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Doing my job for me there at the end as well. Perfect. Um, yeah, thanks ever so much for that. I think, as you said, you're not going to be interested in STEM if you're not aware of how great it is. I think that was one of the quotes you used. And yeah, hopefully sports and basketball, in your example, is a really great way of actually showing people how great STEM can be. Um, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I think if anyone's got any more questions, then type them in the live chat on YouTube. Or if you're watching it back another day, then if you just leave a comment, then we'll try and get an answer. Otherwise, just contact John, as he said on the last slide. Um, but yeah, for the first question, though, John, actually come carrying on from John Question Man Drazen, as you were aged nine, going to reverse it around and yeah you can be the one answering the questions this time but um yeah hopefully people realize this is me playing devil's advocate and not actually my own views but if i were a selfish academic only interested in progressing my own career then i guess why what's in it for me everything you showed is kind of benefits for the youth what are the potential benefits for the actual academic in conducting this? So the, the way that I think about this um, and one of the reasons, the, the way that I internally justify spending a bunch of different time on this rather than like my pure science work is that um, if as scientists, we want to sit there and expand um, the realm of human knowledge. And one of the biggest things that I've, 
thought about and realized is that I'm a good researcher. Like if I cut 10 hours out of my week, or if I return the 10 hours a week that I do this to my research, I would be overall more productive. Maybe I'd get another paper out or something like that. But the way that I think about it is that if I can inspire just five students who otherwise wouldn't have become scientists to become researchers, um, their career work is going to be so much larger than anything I ever could have done. So the thing is that if we can sit there and get more people into the into the field of asking and answering questions, we can sit there and amplify our, we can amplify the scale of human knowledge much more effectively. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, yeah, it's still potentially requiring people to be selfless and kind of, I guess, do things for the, the greater good of science and the community. Yeah. But well, and, and also um, one of the big things is that, um, and I, sorry, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Uh, the, the, the thing is that if, if you look at, if you look at health outcomes in the United States, if someone gets their high school degree or college degree, they're going to have less lower back pain. Like, and so if you really want to solve a lot of the biomechanical questions that we look at. Um, the science is phenomenally important, but in terms of actual actionable things that you can feel good about, um, sitting there and doing educational outreach will sit there and reduce, will make it so that people know how to take care of their bodies and educational attainment is correlated with better musculoskeletal health. So that's another point. And then at least in the United States, the broader impacts criteria is very important for the National Science Foundation. So um, all of these different things can help you with your grant writing as well. Perfect. Very good answer. Um, and yeah, I think prevention's always or mostly cheaper than the cure. Um, but yeah, following on from that, what advice could you give to somebody who's maybe watched this and thinks, I really want to do that in my local area, but I've got no idea where to start. So, so the number one thing um, is find somebody like John Scott. Um, everything that has been built out of this is comes down to mine and John's relationship. Um, because he moves in a bunch of different circles that I don't and vice versa. Um, and the thing is that sitting there and if you if you work in your local university and you advertise a sports science enrichment program, you're going to have professors' kids show up. Whereas if you go to the local YMCA or community center and talk to their basketball program director and say, hey, I would like to do this with you. What do you think? You're going to get a much wider swath of people. So don't reinvent the wheel in terms of recruiting subjects or recruiting participants. Look at what organizations exist in your local community that engage with the population of kids that I share an interest with. And also one of the, one of the key points is that make sure that you authentically love the topic that you decide to talk about. Um, make sure that like, because one of the biggest things is that I've had, I've given this type of presentation um, and I have people ask me like, well, what are you doing for the girls? Why don't you do a dance program for the girls? And I sit there and say, okay, number one, two different things messed up about that. One, I have girls who I've worked with who will, who would eat you up on a basketball court. They would cross you up and you'd fall over. So basketball is not a guy thing. Okay. Basketball can reach anybody. All it takes is a love of basketball. But number two, um, I don't think you've ever seen me dance. <laughs> and it would be super duper obvious that I was pandering to those students. And I was sitting there and I was looking at them and I was saying, you're too dumb. And I would never say this, but like the, the implicit message is you're too dumb to be taken seriously. So I'm going to sit there and pander to you and do a dance thing, even though it's super duper obvious that I'm only talking about dance because I think you'll like it. So, so the thing is that sitting there and like, one of my favorite programs I've ever helped with was a knitting class. 
So there was a there was a graduate student in my fellowship um, when I was at RPI who was like uh, who was like a uh, microbiologist who loved knitting. And she sat there and she looked at my basketball stuff and she was like, oh, I want to do something like that. And I was like, well, what do you like to do? She's like knitting. And then she sat there and she created an after school knitting STEM club that had four four people who showed up every single session and learned about algorithms using knitting. And the thing is that you don't sit there and think knitting is going to be a great way to reach kids at an urban high school. But out of the 1,500 students, there were four of them who were like, I've been waiting for this my entire life. And then they sat there and they went to an after school program for like two years. That was all centered on of the very specific science of knitting. So if you love, if you love football, uh, if you love non-American, I'm just called soccer. I apologize. If you love soccer, do soccer. If you love football, do football. If you love dance, do dance. If you love video games, do video games. But the big thing is that, don't do something that is inauthentic. I think, yeah, I think that's excellent advice. And just from watching you talk for the last hour, I think it's obvious to everybody watching how passionate you are about both the STEM outreach, but also basketball. And I think, yeah, it definitely comes across and it's so much easier to engage students or anyone really in what you're talking about well, when you don't put it on. Well, and the thing is that, like, if I weren't doing the STEM outreach stuff, I'd be a youth basketball coach. Like, I'm being serious. Like, I love playing basketball. I love teaching basketball. I love coaching basketball. So the thing is that I would be doing this anyway. And I'm just bringing my expertise as a scientist into it. That's, I guess, really, that's exactly the same as what we're saying about the students or the youth themselves as well. But it's just tied to you yeah. the whole point is that they would be doing this anyway so you're yeah. using that as the vehicle to engage them whereas yeah the point is that you would also be doing this anyway um, yeah. yeah just all around work well, there's, well. there, there's that, that there, there there's that old joke uh, if you love what you do you don't work a day in your life um like my yeah. favorite thing to do is play basketball and then um and then like talk talk smack about the NBA, and now I just do that to help kids. So it's super interesting. Yeah, I think that was um, that do what you love and you won't work a day in your life is about kind of the main bit of advice my dad gave me over and over again that he just kept saying, oh, "If I had my time again, that's what I'd do." So yeah, that's definitely yeah. record. And um, the only other thing I was thinking is along the lines of what you were saying about reach out to people that are already involved or organizations and programs that are already ongoing from a biomechanics perspective like you mentioned in one of your slides tying it in with something like national biomechanics day will also be beneficial because you've got a supportive infrastructure there they do marketing and there's posters videos promotional materials that you can use so again, if people think, I don't know where to start, then a lot of the National Biomechanics Day stuff can be beneficial there as well. Yeah, for sure. And then also, if you're a graduate student and you work in, um, and if you're trying to sell your PI and you're doing an outreach program, if you sit there and say, I'm going to do something for National Biomechanics Day, there's like 500 other people doing it at the same time. Do you mind? Like, it's a really great way to start the conversation. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, there's a question on YouTube that's along similar lines of one of the questions I'd jotted down. Towards the end, you mentioned the virtual outreach website that you've, or along with others, have kind of developed during lockdown and coronavirus. What's the scope there for others getting involved? Either, say, someone in another country who wants to involve their students in it, or other educators or academics that want to use that. So it's court. So it's courtscience.ca, um, and I'll post that to Twitter. Um, okay. And we can also post it to the comments. Um, but it's a really great website, um, and it's it's a lot of fun to use. And one of the biggest things is that like we've done virtual stuff, like with the Court Science app, and we've done it with 
um, other stuff as well. Um, and the, the biggest thing is just having a authentic question that the kids are interested in. We've done, we've done a lot of outreach programs virtually where it's, it's just me on a PowerPoint and we're talking about Achilles tendon rupture because the kids like, and that isn't the first class that we do. That's like the third class where we've had an entire argument about whether or not KD would have left for the nets if he hadn't ruptured his Achilles. And then the kids are like, why do you do that? I'm like, so by the way, I'm an Achilles tendon rupture researcher. So let's do this. Um, and, uh, and it's really, the important thing is the question, the platform can make things harder or easier. Um, but the, but the best platform isn't going to, um, get around. It isn't going to make up for deficits in thought and planning and engagement. Okay. And yeah, just following up again on, so with that website, can anybody everyone can use it so everyone can use it so um the 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 two people who coded the entire thing uh dan and aditya they are really excited about um having more people use it as a tool brilliant in that case yeah we'll definitely share that oh yeah no no no. they really want to have people use it um and we're actively looking for people to like we'd love to do soccer we'd love to do all these different things um and once again the big thing is that basketball is in our wheelhouse mm-hmm. so so basketball has been what we've been working on um but if people want to get involved to help develop that website further that'd be amazing brilliant thank you um and yeah just again before we finish i think we've about at time there like yeah just thank you ever so much it's been really useful but i think personally as well i've really enjoyed it and i think it's something that i know we were chatting before but it's a resource there that people can go back to because I know next time I plan any outreach once schools and universities are back to a bit more normality, it's something I'll go back and watch again and think, what can I do differently? How can I maybe channel some of this? So hopefully right. it provides a similar resource for others. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. No worries. Thank, thanks for speaking. No, 